cutting into the into my time now. Amen. That's good. We're uh, in Job chapter 32 tonight. If you'll turn your Bibles there, Job chapter 32. It's a blessing to have Beecher, his wife, here with us tonight. Man, we've been praying for him, or I have for sure. Uh, there in Michigan, uh, we had we had a phenomenal pastor leave Michigan in 2014. We needed one to get there. Amen. So that was a joke. Jeremy got it. He's the only one got it. We had a mediocre one leave and a good one go. There we go. That's good. That's what we needed. Job chapter 32. Um, I was uh, thinking as pastors talking about towns a while ago. We were on our trip last week and we drove past or through, semi-through, Yoder, Wyoming. Huh? How about that? I don't get residual checks or nothing, but that's a good name. That's a good town name right there. I thought that is a that is a good town name, I think. Job chapter 32, after the three friends of Job had stopped with their speeches finally, this young guy named Elihu speaks. Now, he has not been mentioned uh, yet, but he's evidently been sitting around listening to all that's going on because he refers to what, what's happening, uh, what they have said before this. So, now, he is mad. He's ticked off because of what he's heard. And tonight we're going to kind of get into what he starts saying. In fact, it's 32 through 37 is his speech. Uh, he gave a long talk, all right? That's a long message. We've been trying to get through one chapter a night with Joe. We've done very good. Uh, tonight we have uh, six chapters to get through. That's not going to happen, so we'll just probably split them up in two. But what Elihu said seemed like he gave a pretty good speech, like the other guys. Uh, a lot of things they say is true, but it just doesn't apply to who they're applying it to. He said some good things, but he failed to provide any answers for Job's problem. So he, he is kind of the last grasp of human effort to fix Job's problem here. And of course, he's going to miserably fail. In fact, God assesses his speech in chapter 38, verse 2, when he said, It darkeneth counsel by words without, without knowledge. That's uh, one way of saying empty-headed words. That's what he was uh, talking about there. Look at verse 1. Actually, let's read a couple of verses, and then I'll just kind of catch up. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram, against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also, against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they found no answer, yet they had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were older than he. When Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu the son of Barakal the Buzzite answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. I was reading that, I was thinking, does he have to throw the word very in there? I mean, couldn't he have just said, you're older than me. No, he says, I am young and you are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always, <laughs> great men are not always wise, he said. So he probably, he sort of intimidates, uh, intimates that I came here thinking that Old men are wise, and I found out that not all old men are wise. That's what he says here. Uh, Neither do the aged understand judgment. He had just called them aged. You're very old, and I've just found out old people don't understand judgment. Now, this is, I call this message, 
I've I've went Elihu speaks, Job answers Elihu. Tonight it's uh, I mean not Elihu, but Eliphaz and the others. Tonight it's the young punk speaks. That's what uh, I've entitled this message because that's exactly what this kid is. He is a young, pretentious, uh, uh, thinks he's smarter uh, punk than the others. That's what we're going to go with. But uh, he prompted the speech was prompted by so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job's three fan, friends finally stopped speaking, and oh, what a relief it is that they finally stopped talking. Uh, every time they opened their mouths, it made things worse. The three stopped talking and arguing because their arguments had not brought Job to repentance. All this, this pontificating and all this wisdom they were pouring out on Job, and he refused to get down on his knees and respond to their altar call, essentially, and get right of all his wickedness. Uh, the Bible says here they thought he was righteous in his own eyes. It's not really true, by the way. Job uh, never denied the fact that he was a sinner. He did deny the fact that there was some special big sin that brought on this judgment, this special judgment. They were trying to, uh, as they believed, that that if you got a lot of trouble come, it's because of wickedness in your life. Uh, if you're doing good and if you're living right and you're pleasing God, only good things will happen in your life. That's true, isn't it? No, of course not. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. A lot of times righteous people suffer. And a lot of times good or bad people, nothing bad happens to them. They're able to just go on and live their wicked life. But here, uh, this is the mistaken attitude they approach Job with. But now look at verse number four. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. Now this is good. Let's give Elihu a little bit of credit here because he was polite in the way he entered the debate. It's a good habit to be patient before you speak. Amen? We'd all agree with that. Interrupting others is a form of pride. You should not interrupt others. I always say this jokingly. I'm just joking, but I, I hate when people keep right on talking when I'm trying to interrupt. Uh, that's, that's pride, or right? that type of thinking. That's thinking that one one what I have to say is so much more important than what's being said. That's what interrupting means really what you're talking but what you're saying is not as important as what I got to say so I'm gonna break in on this conversation it's pride now the deference we see here in verse 6 I am young and you're very old he was polite he gave deference to those older than him age was highly respected in those days probably more than it is today and that's a tragedy uh, we see today I, I and you know I, I say today We've probably, I mean, I've read it several times in church here, that quote by Socrates, you know, about young people these days. Socrates was writing about that way back then. Uh, probably every generation has talked about the young people these days, but, but there is less respect for old age now. Uh, I found this <coughs> in one of my notes, the seven ages of man. Six weeks, all systems go. Six years, all systems know. That's what they say at six, I guess. Six, 16 years, all systems know, K-N-O-W, because you know everything at 16. 26 years, all systems glow. 36 years, all systems owe. 56 years, all systems status quo. 76 years, all systems slow. I think we can identify with those different ones there. Uh, too many young people these days, though, discount the wisdom of those older than them. And uh, old age is not a disease. Old age is strength and survivorship. Old age is triumph over all kinds of changes and disappointments and illnesses and trials. And yet we deal with this. I've dealt with this in, in my own family when our kids and their mates, they discard the, 
years of wisdom we've accumulated. You know, this isn't, isn't because we have a higher IQ. We've been around a little longer. We learn some things. And it's a wise young person that will listen to their elders. I've seen preachers, uh, brother, I'm sure you have too, take a pastorate and just uh, annihilate people that are there, try to uh, come in and, and drop the hammer and do their own thing. Uh, elderly people that have been there for years serving in a church like I think that's a wrong attitude and a bad idea. I determined when I came here that this, that would, uh, we would honor those. And hopefully that's always happened. Honor those who have been here longer than I've been alive. Some have. And, uh, so that, that we want to honor their investment. Amen. That have been uh, faithful here that long. So we should respect those that have lived longer than us. But the problem we see with Elihu is although he waited, this is the end of his respect. In fact, he's very pompous. And he's very proud the way he comes in. He spoke last because he was the youngest. By no means was he the best. Uh, num- verse number six, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. He thought that it would be wise uh, if uh, that he might not be seen as wise in comparison. And so he was afraid to speak up. But then he continues in saying, basically, I've been sitting here listening to you and I'm not afraid anymore because I've seen no wisdom come from you guys. And so now I have something to say. Great men are not always wise, he said, verse 9. This was a justified criticism, even though he didn't prove to be any better. By the way, is it true great men are not always wise? Yes. Uh, But are there some younger men that are wiser? I mean, there are some that that God's blessed with some wisdom, but uh, I've, I've learned one thing. If you have more wisdom... It's best not to talk about it. It's best to just show it in your life. You, if you notice this chapter, as I was working through chapter 32, and I come to verse 7, and I come to verse 8, I come to verse 11, and you're going down, and I find out as working through each verse, he didn't say anything in this chapter. All he's doing is talking about his credentials, how, how, uh, how appropriate it is for them to listen to him and how uh, how qualified he is to talk. All right, let's start working through it here. He expected more from these three friends, and so he's disappointed in them. Now, it's apparent to uh, Elihu uh, that, that Job's three friends were not full men of wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 12. There was none of you that convinced Job or that answereth his words. Job's friends had miserably failed to shed any light on Job's problem. And uh, But still, like I said, we're at verse 12 now, and he still hasn't said anything himself. He's so full of himself. He's going to talk for six chapters. And, uh, and I'm not trying to, by the way, disparage young people as a whole, but uh, here's the youngest guy in the group, and he speaks for the longest. Uh, just because you have a lot to say doesn't mean you have a lot to say. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, a lot of times... Uh, people talk a whole lot and they don't say anything worth hearing. And so he is going to talk longer than anybody else, including he talks longer than God talks in the book of Job. That's never smart, all right? But that's what he does. And verse 18, I love this. For I am full of matter. I looked up that word matter. Words is one of the meanings. I am full of matter. I'm full of words. He's full of something. A lot of hot air is what he's full of. And uh, we're going to see that as we go through. Verse 17, I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. Elihu wanted to be heard. That is human nature. We all like to be heard, do we not? That's why we talk so much. 
But we need to control this desire and speak when we can be a help and when our speech and our words are a benefit to the situation at hand. Elihu speaks of three things that moved him to speak. He was fed up, he was filled up, and he was fired up. Look at the three here in verse number two and three. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu against Job because he justified himself rather than God. Look at verse number three. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they found no answer. So he was fed up. He was angry about these speeches of Job and his three friends. He was fed up with their talk. So we have the picture kind of uh, of him sitting there just stewing as they go back and forth. Nothing's been solved. I tell you what, one, one thing young people like, uh, they like results. It's still true today. Young people like results. They like to see that some, we're going somewhere, we're doing something. Uh, and I'm not saying all older folks are like this, but sometimes we're a little bit more happy just talking back and forth, and, and uh, you know, we don't, we don't have to get to the end result right now, but young people tend to be impatient. And so here he is sitting there, he's listening, he's not hearing any answers from either side, and he is absolutely fed up. He's angry at the innocence claimed by Job. He justified himself rather than God. By the way, again, not true, this is what they said, but... It's not necessarily true, except he did justify himself, kind of, and he wasn't wrong in saying it wasn't wickedness that brought on his this trial. It was righteousness that brought the trial on. It wasn't wickedness. So he was right about that. Now, uh, the three friends didn't have a clue as to Job's case, but still they have been condemning him for 32 chapters. Now, stop and think about that for a minute, because do we ever do that? condemn people when we don't know the situation we do it all the time sometimes in little ways and sometimes in bigger ways but we condemn people when we don't know what's going on in their life even when some somebody's rude to you i was talking to my son about this the other day uh somebody if somebody's rude to you trying to think of what might have happened in her we don't know what happened in their life well somebody's in the hospital what if they got a sick kid or something we have no idea what's going on that they're stressing out about all we're focused on is me and how I'm being treated. And so we do this a lot, condemn people when we don't know the situation. Let's be careful that we don't make assumptions in our condemnation. All right? They was also not only fed up, but filled up. Verse 18, I am full of matter. Look at verse 19. My belly is, is as wine which hath no, no vent and is ready to burst like new bottles. What a description. As wine is fermenting and it, uh, I, I make some fermented stuff. Uh, sometimes I make uh, sauerkraut and different things. And when it ferments, you got to vent it, okay? And uh, it, it it it'll blow if you don't. So he's talking about this. The wine is it's it's uh, growing and growing and growing. Is about to burst. Uh, so so uh, he's basically saying that uh, he's got so much to say that he's going to blow up if he doesn't get it out of his system. And uh, gossips and slanders have a lot to say, but it will only do harm when they do it. And here is a blowhard that's, uh, that, that uh, is, is about to prove that he's no better. And then he's fired up. Verse 18, the spirit within me constraineth me. The word constraineth is better understood by our word compelled. All right, like what does the New Testament says? The love of Christ constraineth me. And uh, it compels us. And so the spirit mentioned in our text is not the Holy Spirit. It refers to his his emotions, he's fired up emotionally. The problem is that uh, many in our churches even today can't tell the difference between being fired up emotionally and fired up by the Holy Spirit. 
We need to be careful with that because you'd better know the difference. Being fired up emotionally gets you to do all kinds of things, not always the right thing. And uh, we even see this here with Elihu's case here. It can lead you in all kinds of trouble. We've been talking on Sunday mornings about uh, being filled with the Spirit, having the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk this Sunday. Don't miss this Sunday. It's going to be a good one. The joy of Jesus. Jesus was a happy person. Come Sunday, we'll talk about it. Uh, Being fired up emotionally, though, can lead you in all kinds of trouble here. Uh, he talks. Uh, he talks a little bit about some of the uh, things that, uh, he, with some disclaimers in his speech here. There's no going to be no favoritism. Look at verse 21. Uh, let oh, let me see here. If I'm the right place. Uh, verse 21. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man. This guy is so full of himself, and he's he's like I said, a young punk. He says, I'm not going to show any favoritism in my pontificating. There will be no flattery, he said. Look at verse 21 and 22, or verse 22. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my maker would soon take me away. Uh, So he's going to be honest, he said. For he fears God will slay him if he's not honest. So I'm not going to take any, uh, show any favoritism here. And he says, I'm not going to flatter anybody. I'm not going to let people decide. By the way, it's verse 22. He still hasn't said anything. He's still talking about what he's going to do. He's still setting up his speech because he's so, so important. It's a blowhard. Most of Elihu's speech is prosecuting Job. He's no different than the friends he's criticized. He does exactly what they do. He also accuses Job of wickedness. He's a little bit more subtle, but not that much. He claims that he wanted to justify Job, chapter 33, verse uh, 32. He said that he was Job's advocate in verse 6 of chapter 33. Uh, but in truth, he was his prosecutor, not his defender. By the way, if you ever uh, have to hire a defense lawyer, uh, don't be a defense lawyer like Elihu was against Job because he claims he was, but he was not at all. Uh, he was like a lot of politicians today, sound like he's for the people, but in actuality, he acts against them. Chapter 33 starts by the denouncing of uh, Job by Elihu. Uh, he's been filled here with self-exaltation all of chapter 32. Now, it's something that we might not think about, but I want to point it out because it's a little shocking when you look at the culture and you look at the fact he's the first to do it and the youngest. He did something in verse 1. Look at what it says here. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Calls him by his first name. None of his older which would have been Job's peers, did that. This was, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in that culture, this would be kind of like sticking your finger in his chest. Or it was just, uh, it was disrespectful. He accuses Job of claiming innocence on his part. Now, again, just the way he talks, uh, I, I've seen this, and I don't know, uh, Brother Beach, you might feel the same. How old are you, Brother Beach? Can I ask? Okay, so you're, you're in the right age, amen. I didn't want to start talking about much younger. You might be, you know, much younger. So, but uh, so you're old enough to have worked with younger people, and uh, sometimes it's it, it it can be very frustrating and annoying. I guess you can say when you have young guys who uh, demand respect they have not earned. I guess you could say, and we've all been there. I think we've all done that to a certain extent. Uh, but when we start to demand and command that someone much older than us, the greatest man in the East, the Bible said, so this was somebody that was at just previous to this trial greatly respected, 
listen to me, Job. Time for you to stop talking and listen to me. I am 22 and a half years old, and I got something to say. That's essentially what he's saying here. And it's just, I just, I, I'm reading this, and it just rubs me wrong. Elihu is no different than his friends. He, he accuses Job of innocence on his part, verses 8 and 9. And, and by the way, he did <coughs> claim innocence of the trial, but not innocence of sin in general. He also accuses Job of claiming injustice on God's part, verse number 10. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. Uh, verse, uh, verse number 13, he accuses Job of claiming indifference in God's part. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Uh, the, Job was continually asking God the why question about his afflictions. And God seemed to be apathetic. And Job speaks this out. And, and, and it, we, we, how, by the way, how often do we feel those sentiments? When we're going through terrible trial, and we, we, we say these observations that Job, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And we say, God, it's not fair. Uh, we might not say it, but we think it, we feel it. And then with those other two, and we're praying out to God, and we're asking, and then we come to the point that God doesn't care. Where is God? He's not answering me. How often do we feel those things? Uh, and again, as we said in the beginning, this is not Job's character talking. It's his pain talking. This is not who he was. You know it, I know as well. We've all been in these situations where when we are in a terrible trial, we're not acting like we normally act. We're in a trial. That's why these men should have had a little bit of patience. And they should have had some compassion. Stop preaching and start caring just a little bit. Here is what they should have done. These men, in their perfect health, sitting around Job, pounding and kicking a man who has lost everything. They don't have the, the patience for it, the compassion. The Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the word compassion comes from the root word for womb, in, uh, like womb in a woman, W-O-M-B. The picture is of a birthing mother giving all she has to bring a child into the world, and that's the word they use for compassion. The point is that something new is being born, and we apply this to the human experience, means that my compassion acts as always giving another person a new chance at life, gives him a new opportunity, not holding past failures against him, but offering a fresh start. Don't we all want that from others? Absolutely we do. Why, don't we, why can't we offer it to them? Am I willing to give it to other people? Compassion will dramatically change the way that we relate to each other. It's the heart that God put into mothers, and I think it's interesting, the same word uh, for womb and compassion. At his clinic in Topeka, Kansas, Dr. Carl Menninger instructed his staff that the most important thing they could offer any patient was love, and this is his quote. He said, if people can learn to give and receive love, they usually recover from their physical or mental illness much sooner. I contend the same is true in the spiritual realm. If we can show the love of Christ to folks that are in desperate need, instead, there are times, but now look, I believe in holding the line. I believe in doing, uh, you know, not compromising, amen. We're a big B Baptist. We're going to go right down the line. But there are times when it is not time to preach our conviction. It is time to put our arms around somebody. Just love them and show some compassion. Jesus did that. We just saw it in a story we talked about last Sunday with the... Uh, woman uh, caught in adultery. The second question 
the, the first thing I wanted to just discuss here was how often do we feel these sentiments. The second question, what about you, Elihu? I doubt any of these four clowns would have responded as good as Job did. I doubt any of them would have said, uh, when everything's gone, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked will I return hither, blessed be the name of the Lord. I doubt any of them would have said that. And yet Job did. It doesn't stop them from getting up on their high horse and giving it and ripping on Job when he's down. Galatians 5.14, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you not be consumed of one another. This was no help for them to come in and treat Job as such. We must support one another. When we are in pain or in a trial or somebody's in trouble, every person that comes through the doors of Bible Baptist Church must feel like there is someone here that loves them enough to help them through whatever situation they're going to. It grieves my heart that Job so desperately needed, he did not get. What he so desperately needed, he didn't get. It grieves my heart if there's anybody here in these pews that so desperately need something and not aren't getting it. At one point, uh, well, I'm not going to name him yet. I'll just call him a lawyer. Loved to attack his opponents through scathing letters printed in newspapers. In 1842, he ridiculed James Shields, uh, who didn't take kindly to this author, lampooning him. So he, Mr. Shields found the attorney who had embarrassed him and challenged him to a duel. Well, the attorney was a writer, not a fighter, but he couldn't get out of the duel without losing his honor. And so he was given the choice of weapons, and he chose swords because he had long arms and was hoping that he would be able to use them to his advantage. For a week, he prepared, trained with a West Point graduate as he prepared to fight to his death with swords. On the appointed day, he met Mr. Shields on a sandbar on the Mississippi River. At the last minute, just before they commenced fighting, their friends kind of intervened and talked him out of this duel, and, and uh, they stopped it, and they went their separate ways. The lawyer returned to his practice to completely changed man. He determined never would he criticize anyone again out of hand. Years later, in the White House, when his wife wanted to criticize the Southern people during the Civil War, President Lincoln said this, don't criticize them. They're just what they would be under, they're just what we would be under similar circumstances. At one point, Lincoln had a critical spirit. He got rid of it. He decided this was not what he was going to allow in his life. Let us be so careful lest we wound someone that needs healing. We're so good at that in our churches because we're Baptists. We have convictions. We're down the line. And amen to all that. That's good. That's good. We need to be. But let's, there's times when people don't need pontification. They need compassion. Uh, Job certainly did, and he got none of it And how sad it is. Uh, throughout this chapter, Chapter 33, Elihu just continues to tear in the reputation and character of Job. He was long on words. He was short on performance. And it exposes his real intent. He's no friend of Job. Uh, believed Job had sinned. Wished the maximum punishment on him. At no point tries to be understanding. And uh, we just see kind of more of the same that we've seen throughout the whole book. When Elihu is defaming Job and others, he starts to talk about the char uh, character of God, which we're going to get into next week. And verses 30, or chapters 36 and 37, and he talks about the character of God, and we'll see what we can pick up from there. But uh, I guess our takeaway for tonight, show compassion, amen, for those who so desperately need it. If we would have a little bit more tenderness, a little bit more kindness, uh, this was like a, 
<coughs> this, this was like a conference where they got together and all thought they had to out-wisdom each other. There's a time when that's not necessary. There's a time when we just show some compassion. Father, help us as we go throughout the rest of this evening.